Hey, it's George K here. 2023 is winding down. George A and I are busy behind the scenes for next year, but today we're in a reflective mood. So we're teeing up a best of episode featuring insights from a few guests over the past few months. We hope you enjoy it. Jason, what is your recommendation for sellers on operating rhythm and building pipeline? And I will, I will qualify that. So do you have a prescription for the breakdown of time? Like how much of your day should be spent on managing your relationships, working your existing deals, outreach efforts, maybe block it off by days. I don't I just want to get a sense of like when you're building these teams or you're trying to train people, like how, there's a lot that a seller has to do. There's generate new, there's manage existing, there's forecast. How are you like breaking down all those activities? So I, I want to start with the most important piece that manages revenue, which would be forecast. Mm -hmm. So it all starts with forecast accuracy. I've been lucky enough that I've worked for some great VPs of sales and some excellent organizations um, that have taught me this throughout the process, but um, or throughout my career, forecast accuracy can drive everything. So what I mean by that is that if you're going to define your very first meeting and you're going to put $100,000 into the system and you're going to put it <laughs> at the wrong, right? You laugh because you know you've seen it. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I have a meeting with George A., and I have a great meeting with him and it, it's incorrectly set up in the system, then you're spending time on the wrong things. So let's start with that. So you, you want to spend your time on the things that are farther down the line and end of quarter, end of year, setting up for next quarter, whatever that might be. And I'm going to have a, a take that's probably not going to be as popular for you guys or the people that listen on the show, but I'm not going to take as much time on the relationship side. Uh, because that's a pitfall that can happen to a lot of people where you go back to those comfortable conversations and you've probably seen this and stuff will be in the forecast forever. And you don't really have great forecast accuracy there because what you have is a relationship and those are great and you need them. And that's how you get other areas of the business, but you also have to be able to go out there and look for new business as well. So I don't, there are breakdowns and I will tell you the breakdowns mm -hmm. in time are very important for SDRs, BDRs, things like that. I feel we, we over pivot on the top of the funnel and we don't focus as much on the middle of the funnel, which especially for enterprise sales or, or larger uh, sales is very important. So yeah, that's the hardest part. That's the hardest right. part. It's the most protracted part. It's where all the complication occurs. Like it got stuck in procurement or they couldn't get whatever. Yeah, I get you. I was going to say though, but that's part of your job, like as a sales pro, especially if I'm a prospect, or if you're trying to upsell me on like an expansion of the account, right? Like where we have to be a team, like me as the mm -hmm. like sponsoring practitioner and you as the seller, you need to equip me with the information I need with the various stakeholders that I have to win over. We have I to have it. a substantive conversation about timeline, like relationships. Yep. Great. But I'm in the same boat as you, man. Like my time is real limited. It's quite valuable. So like, I might like you as a person, but I only got so much time today <laughs> to hang with friends. And I might like you like as a seller as well. If your product is something I want and we have to win over certain key stakeholders, I need your help to equip me to win them over. Because if you fail to do that, no matter how much I want it, 
I've rarely, if ever, met a CISO who has independent purchasing power without having to go through someone else's alignment or blessing or buy-in. 100%. So I think that's like a big component of the business of sales that doesn't really get stressed on enough. It's like not just the person you're talking to, but who do they have to win over? Because then I have to become your sales champion inside my own organization to close the friggin' deal. Yeah, and that goes back to forecast management. So let me exactly there. So I'm bringing value. I've pegged you as somebody that we have a over 50% chance in. So now I've segmented that out in my top list of 50 with my red, yellow, and green. You're certainly green at this point or my top 100 or whatever you're looking at. And when you're looking at that forecast and you're saying, oh, and, and to your point, I don't know how much time I have to put aside on that. I know that I need to be able to give freedom to the people that are doing this to have the time to do that, to say, I, you know, how long is it going to take to build an ROI? Who are the different decision makers within the organization? Is it possible that, that George is going to allow me to meet them? And then by meeting them, I, am I going to have to go through these iterations again? And you'd be amazed at how much time that takes within the process. And the difference is you can either spend your cycles working through that, or you can spend your cycles thinking about why SDRs and BDRs and outreach doesn't work. There's not enough time to do both. So if you're going to have mm -hmm. a one hour meeting, you can either talk about like how we move things along. I had a great uh, BPS sales and sort of mentor of mine who basically moved on and said, okay, we're only talking stuff moving forward. That's it. I'll give you 10 minutes to go through all the stuff that didn't work. And then we move on from there. As a sales leader, how do you find that you can effectively change C-suite or ownership perspectives to become more qualitative and not exactly just quantitative, quantitatively metrics driven, right? Because yeah. again, it's about the balance between relationship and yeah. delivery. So the joke we always made at the beginning when, when as cybersecurity was coming up and it wasn't even cybersecurity is I'd sort of make the joke of like, I'm just wheeling in a cash machine at this point because I went to the Verizon study and found out that each breach costs an average of $3.2 million. So I don't know if you remember this, you guys were both mm -hmm. probably around when all these were coming out. So I'm going to make this ROI model based on cost of breach, $20 million, my products only a hundred thousand, boobity boom, great, right? That doesn't necessarily work. Uh, as you know, so I love that we use the word team. So it has to be a team effort in the way that you define value within the organization. What type of risk model you have? Do you have an hard ROI or a soft ROI? Um, hard ROI might be like a product replacement, right? Or something where you're taking away something that you would have to pay for in order to pay for someone to actually do that. Um, so you kind of have to look at that. I found that soft ROI is really difficult. When I was replacing products, you know, working with organizations, replacing millions of dollars of products, there was a pretty good hard ROI there that I could sort of hone in on. Um, to your point, George, I think you have to help define what that is. And then the other part that's hard about this industry, if we're going all the way back to some of the complaints, is that you really nailed it. Um, there isn't one decision maker anymore. And usually it's the CISO that's part of a broader budget that you have to figure yep. out and how do you interact with that. And does the CISO, and this is the job of salespeople, does the CISO even have a relationship with that buyer where they even like each other, man? Like I've been in, I've been in plenty of meetings where the, the, the purchase, the, the purchasing person and the other groups they're in, they're in conflict. So you sort of navigate that, that part as well. Funny, I was just talking to another friend of mine, a friend in sales and, um, he's like going to start a job in a new shop. And, um, that shop handles uh like something we'll say very traditional blue team component right? mm -hmm. i want to out them they're a startup as well 
And he asked me, so he was like, hey, as a CISO, is this like random base level thing important to you? And it's like, I mean, it is, but it's kind of like, it's basic network infrastructure kind of dynamic. So like mm-hmm. I have a provider for that. They're like best in class. I'm not going to shift. Yeah. yeah. Unlikely like, to change. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, but they're trying to like <laughs> see like how, how much like a potential buyer would have an appetite for them. And I'm like, I don't know, dude. I mean, I'm sure the company's exciting. I'm sure the people you interviewed are like super cool, but like, don't know how good that takeoff is going to be in that space because, uh, you know, George, I, I think you saw the same thing at, at Black Hat this year. Traditional security suppliers, are, it's a pretty saturated market. Yeah, there's this delicate balance, right? I mean, there's this flavor of disruption or whatever, but the large, big problems are where, especially when budgets tighten, where you got to focus. And mm-hmm. so like the tiny niche players, it wasn't this RSA, it was the one before the whole back row was like passwordless vendors, <laughs> none of which were there the next year. Right. It was like so niche. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, how much money is there for that really? Or how much priority, I guess, is the the better question. Um, and then if right. you go too big and you're like, OK, well, instead of like. MDM, I'm going to go like this really broad data encryption, whatever. Well, then you start running into like the bigger players that just have those features built yeah. into, you know, so it's a delicate balance. But this is this is sort of related to my next question, which is given your buyer perspective and given what we talked about in terms of a change in sales and ramp models, what would you tell, what would you advise startups to focus their energies on today. Cause I know I would tell them like, stop trying to double your sales team, but I don't know if you have different, <laughs> different advice. Yeah, I, I would say uh, that's probably a good rule of thumb. Like don't, don't start with like doubling your sales team as first is be a lot more crystal clear. Uh, talk to a lot more customers, number one, and like or mm. potential customers and actually find out like how close are you to really to product market fit. And then, uh, find out if you're a feature or a, or a product itself. Because mm, yeah, yeah. Ma- many startups I've talked to at very early stage, I'm like, someone's just going to turn that on eventually. Like Sneaker, like Google, they're just going to say, mm-hmm. oh, we, and we do this. And then you're you're <laughs> yeah. useless after that um, as a niche player. And, you know, it's, it's always kind of the, the external threat from like the large incumbent players. But it's, 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 uh, it's an interesting market in that like, some overlap can exist, but if you're, if you're very specialized then you can become a good acquisition target, you can become, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so think about how, how are you positioning? Like if your goal is to, as a, as an early stage company to knock Palo Alto off its block, probably not going to happen anytime soon. Same with CrowdStrike and others. Like, uh, but if your goal is to then, um, highlight or add features to like, you know, maybe one of the larger platform companies, uh, that doesn't have something and that you solve it very well, um, then that's, and you position yourself to be part of a larger platform ecosystem and be acquired that way. That's a good thing to kind of focus on. And I think that, you know, that also speaks a bit to, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, startup founder feelings around what does success at, at a, at a startup look like now? Um, it used to be, you know, it's the VC go bigger, go bus IPO model only was success. Um, and I think a lot more people are realizing that, Hey, you, you can have a, you know, 20 to 30 million ARR business, um, and serve a lot of customers and do very well, um, and then become acquired. And that's a really good outcome for the founders and the early employees. Um, 
So I'd say you make sure you, you're clear on where you're at. Um, yeah. And because you see a lot of companies now that are just getting acquired um, that took in massive amounts of money. And but they, they probably got acquired because they had very little of that money left and they didn't do, do yeah. a great job of like capturing the market because they were a feature that someone else just turned on. It reminds mm-hmm. me of um, you know, like last week's, uh, last year before um, Atlassian acquiring uh, Loom. Yep. And just integrating that into their platform. And you're kind of like, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool for Jira. <laughs> yeah. I, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, that, and I think that was, who knows if the valuation was kind of worth it, but it was kind of good test into, into public markets again. And, um, but it's, it's, that's a great one. That's a great add on as opposed mm-hmm. to like, like Loom wasn't also doing ticket management or like you yeah. know, Kanban boards. Yeah. This will actually well, enhance also, those things. <laughs> and a- acquisition is going to favor those with cash on hand, right? Because it, you can't get like the steep valuation and then someone's going to go out and get a zero interest loan to do acquisition, right? They're just not going to do that anymore. Yeah. So, so that actually, George brings up a good point for my next question is where do you see the trend going in terms of, uh, you know, a potential return for an appetite to invest in new security technologies and teams? Like, I mean, when do you predict the recessionary impacts of the global economy will stop limiting the ability of practitioners to push to buy or push to hire again? I would say we're probably rounding the bend on that, generally speaking. So uh, we were in the we were in the trough of disillusionment, like the bottom and like <laughs> yeah. the rest of 2022 and most of 2023. Uh, but even as interest rates rise, like if you kind of look at like the, like the the heads of finance around the world, like the U.S. federal uh, uh, the Fed economy and um, like the you know the European Central Bank and things like that, like the moves they make influence how everyone else feels and how it influences mm. public markets and how they respond. Um, and then you start seeing cracks of light through maybe this company goes IPO. Uh, maybe this company takes a down round, but it's uh, it's only a little bit of a haircut. And so it's actually pretty good. And so you start seeing people, you start seeing some of those little sprouts of like grass shoot up through like the, the cyber winter. I just made that term. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I like it. I dig it. <laughs> uh, but you know, see, so you, you saw some of that and now, um, you know, some of the companies who like were kind of, you know, not thriving as well have either kind of quietly gone away or they're, they're getting acquired or they're, I think Q4 is going to be a buying spree on, on that front. Mm. Um, because companies are just going to be like, okay, you're just about cheap enough now to buy yeah, and fire like, sale. <laughs> yeah. Some of them unfortunately will be, but, but I think, uh, you know, now that, um, you know, I think if we get a couple quarters away from the, like the hype of that and you, what you'll see is it like a disconnect between like what the fed says, the U S fed says and how the public markets react. And if it's as long as that, that reaction is small enough, then people will start opening up again effectively. Uh, and, and the businesses will start investing again. So you've, you've seen some companies who have laid off people who then, you know, six months later have said, actually, we need, we do need that project manager again. And they post mm-hmm. another role. And so they're starting to kind of slowly build back up, but they're all companies of all industries are going through that, that, that financial tightening process and the operational efficiency process and that, the fine tooth comb overview of the CFO office. Um, and so some will do much better than others like healthcare and manufacturing are having a tear in a good way right now. Um, others are not doing as well. Um, 
Yeah, and I so always like to see yeah. the uh, the big tentpole conferences as the bellwether, right? Mm-hmm. Like some of the companies that have like the giant, enormous booth at the bottom of the escalators <laughs> at RSA, even though they yeah. bought it two years ago, sometimes they end up in a smaller booth because they renegotiated in there somewhere in the expo mm-hmm. hallway or something. Yeah. Know, just, there's like a, and no one's talking about it. It's totally like everyone's quiet about it, but you can kind of see which way the wind is blowing. Well, you can see who's yeah. driving and who's not, that's for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. And I think um, it also says something too, like we'll start seeing uh, more qualified buys and hiring, meaning like now that like the trusted advisor or the outside uh, firm's opinion may actually mean more than it used to prior to they. So like mm-hmm. the, the analyst firms, the gardeners, the forces of the world, they may not mean something to a certain size of company or a growing size of companies, but like the big ones who have more capital at stake, who have more impact at stake, they're going to be leaning on those companies even a lot more now to make smarter, better informed decisions and say, well, actually your security team should be this many span of control, this many functions. We've seen other companies do it like this. And this, these are the tech they're buying to get you more of that platform feel. Um, but I'd say like, the long answer or the short answer, I'd say probably like another two to three quarters where we start seeing like, uh, I don't think we'll ever return to normal, but I think it'll, it will become, you know, a little bit easier to operate. We do. We don't need to turn into cyber Vegas, but it'd be nice to just be able to have a predictable budget cycle. (laughs) Yeah. And like hire people again. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to catch up on past episodes you may have missed. And now back to the episode. I think there's something to be said for your diversity of experience, not only in work, but like I would, I would presume in life. Like if I can look at your resume or your LinkedIn, it's like, oh, cool. This dude's done like a little bit of everything everywhere. <laughs> like, that's great. I can only imagine in your personal life. I feel like you're the kind of guy that's like, I was a dive instructor at some point in Thailand. <laughs> like, I feel like you're that kind of dude, which is totally great. Shout out to my other friend, Louise, who was actually a, <laughs> she's uh she was actually a dive instructor in thailand now a very good uh uh web app pen tester but i was gonna ask do you think that you know because you've had such a a really we'll say wide range of diversity and experiences in life not just work life that gives you kind of more ammo to be able to connect with your prospects more easily because you know at the end of the day it's really weird as a practitioner when you're talking to someone who's new or relatively new and they seem to just like not have enough life experience to talk about general stuff and things to get to an actual <laughs> value prop based conversation. <laughs> um, well, firstly, um, you hit the nail right on the head there because my, my long-term goal is to end up opening a non-profit diving school in Indonesia. So I'm going to need Shut the front fun. door. No, it's oh, not. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It really is. Uh, so I'm going to need Louise's contacts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I need to help you out. <laughs> um, and, and obviously to your main question, yes, I think having that diversity of experience is, is amazing. Um, like I, I mean, my, I'm 35 this year. I think uh, w- when I left, you know, uni um, in 2012, I, I really didn't know where life would take me. Um, and so, just adding new, you know, novel experiences like every single day um, or every single year, I think it has led to 
the ability to connect with people um, a lot deeper in that sense. Um, so yes. Nice. Yeah. So basically for folks listening, if you're new and you're curious, like how come I can't connect with my prospects, go just go do cool shit. Do shit that <laughs> you, you personally find cool. Yes. And then do cool things and talk about it. 100%. Yeah, you got to you got to have some stories to to share over a few drinks or a meal. Mm. If you're just sitting there silent cuz you don't have anything to say and then that's <laughs> just there, can you give me your money now? Sign <laughs> <laughs> the SOW. Um, so Chris, we mentioned earlier that when we tried to get you on in September, you were studying for this technical exam. We have had a lot of conversations on the show about like the level of technical knowledge that salespeople should acquire. There's some uh, mixed feelings on that. What is your recommendation? Because we're in the brass tax portion for incoming SDRs, BDRs. How would you tell them to proceed? Yeah, so this is this might be a little bit uh, controversial. Um, but I think that SDRs should spend some of their time learning the product um, just because the conversations over a phone, um, you know, can, can get a little bit more interesting. Um, and George being a CISO, um, you know, he can smell BS from a mile away. So I'm sure like, you know, if you don't know anything of what you're selling or what you're trying to talk about, you know, he'll, he'll pick that up and hang up on you. <laughs> Uh, is that controversial? Maybe, but if it's controversial, it's controversial for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good advice. Um, was your technical learning a product of your training or did you just take that up on your own? Uh, my, my goal is, uh, essentially to be a solutions engineer. Um, you know, over the course of a few years. And so um, I've had, again, the power of my network. Um, a lot of SEs from different organizations um, helped me try to find the path from SDR to SE because um, it mm. hasn't been done before for Drado. And the usual path is, you know, SDR to an account exec. And so, um, so, so it is more career-inspired and also curiosity-inspired just because AWS is, you know, one of the, biggest cloud infrastructures out there yeah i mean man it comes full circle i love that you use the network to understand a potential career bridge and then and then i think you know we've touched on it now this is the third time the curiosity to just like go for that so yeah i would take that but i i do take your point to the average sdr bdr like have some base level technical knowledge because if you get the person and they don't hang up on you and then they ask you is it agent based or a or do you use an api and you don't know what an api is that's going to be highly problematic <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I that is one of the biggest pet peeves i have where it's like if you're a seller and you're there to like and like even if you're just on pre-sales like know your catalog enough to be at least a little bit dangerous because if you if you just don't do that and it's clear you just got hired and thrown immediately into the breach or you're just lazy and you don't like doing the homework um i got plenty of friends i can party with i don't need to waste like work time to meet another party boy you know yeah yeah, yeah. well and also to go back to how quickly you can connect with somebody 
it's very hard to empathize with their problems or in this case, you know, business problems with cloud infrastructure. You don't understand the infrastructure because what happens in that friction point in the call, and this is sort of this older sales model, is as soon as George starts asking those questions, you're going to be like, yeah, yeah, let me book some time with our, you know, that's that's the corral into the demo phase. It's an it's sort of like setting you up for failure and also creating an unnecessary amount of friction because now you have to like go into the playbook and figure out like the judo move to get him to just accept the demo with somebody else. I don't know. You know, it's like a, that's, I just think that puts you on bad footing because then as George has said many times, like credibility begins to evaporate. <laughs> well, I, just, I, I could, I could like easily like look at you for selling me cloud servers and be like, how easy is it to integrate my Ansible playbook into this? And if it just goes over their head, I'm like, well, this conversation's over. <laughs> cloud <laughs> basics, cloud basics. That's all we're talking about. Yeah. yeah um, I, I will say like, I, I have, you know, turned meetings away before just because I feel like there isn't an alignment between their tech stack and, and what, you know, Drata can do. Um, mainly because like humans are humans at the end of the day. And so if I call George, for example, like I do know that I'm taking 20 minutes, 55 minutes out of his work time, um, which as a CISO, a lot more responsibilities. And so um, definitely appreciative like the time that people spend um, talking to me. And so if I just push them into a demo with an AE, that's another half an hour wasted down the road. Gold, gold advice. Yeah, you're beginning to appreciate <laughs> and quantify time. I'm digging it. I'm digging it. Before we go, because we're running the, the corner here, tell me a little bit more about turning down meetings. We've literally never heard that. <laughs> so just talk talk me through one of those experiences yeah so um one of the things that drata wasn't able to do in its early stages was connect with um on-prem uh infrastructure and so you know if they're telling me that they're hosting data on premises um usually that's that's already a, a no-go and so it's like thanks for your time obviously um and then they'll be looking for more uh traditional grc solutions so yeah but i want you to literally tell me what you say to them like oh sounds like we don't have a good fit or like tell me how you're like walking off that meeting because i think a yeah, lot of people need to hear that yeah that, that's exactly that's exactly it i'm just like listen thanks um for you know letting me a sneak view of your um of your technology stack um Drata's unfortunately unable to uh, help you or assist you with, with, with what you're trying to achieve uh, just because we don't have the ability to integrate with on-premises right now. Um, so, you know, I'd be happy to reach back out once we can. And what is the response? What do you get from that? Uh, overwhelmingly good, actually, um, which, is, which is, again, why I think um, it's more important to value other people's time. I gotta say, like, I can, I can confirm that as well. Like, I've, I've had... <laughs> I've had sales folks who are actually now like I consider personal friends like early on in our more relationship. You know, it's like they get to the point where we're pitching and I explain to them like this is where this is how my tech stack is right now. This is the roadmap for the next 18 months. What do you got? 
and they'll though they've looked at me and been like i just don't think there's anything that can work for us here man them saying that them being the ones to acknowledge that it first of all makes me respect them and and makes me think that there's a little bit of integrity there and then secondly if if they have a good product or they represent a good good supplier and the need comes up for what they're selling later they're going to be the first name i think of to call Let's let's dig into this a little bit. I feel like there's a sea change. There are several factors underway that I think make the wild west of B2B 2012 to 2015 untenable. So a few things. One, I think the market has matured and people have tired of these tactics, right? I mean, it's just not a day you go by on LinkedIn that people's not decrying some sort of like cold outreach. So like the appetite of the market has changed. Technology is changing. Like Google just announced is basically going to block domains. If they're sending more than 5,000 emails a day, that includes things like it requests or help desk tickets or just not the marketing quote unquote blasts. Right. Mm -hmm. So whoa, that makes all of the ecosystem of that software sales loft outreach. Like they're all, got to put those limits into their software because if they become the signal, like their uh, servers get blocked, which would be, you know, catastrophic to their business. Um, and then lastly, interest rates are back. So, you know, as we've talked to a few VCs, things like customer churn is a problem. New logo acquisition is expensive. So they're looking for customer retention they are looking for cash flow positivity. You can't just like, you know, run at a loss and run the ARR up. And that's the valuation math as cleanly as you did before when we were in the zero interest rate period. So I, I don't know. I really feel like there's some, there's some serious change afoot. And it's to your point, Danny, how quickly the market realizes that sees that writing on the wall and, and begins to adapt to it. Well, they, they realize it, but then they, they invest resources in the wrong places because they think, okay, well, because of this, we got to hire more demand gen directors or more <laughs> growth mm. managers instead of, all right, let's implement resources we have, shift and focus on customer marketing and advocacy. Let's hire more customer marketers. Let's even like double down on, on that play, like on the retention play, which I've been in a lot of companies, Okay. You know, average tenure is about a year and a half, too, for me. And I've been in the mm -hmm. game for 14, 15 years. So it's about seven different companies. In not one company has there been an end-to-end -end retention play. It's been, like, on the back burner. And I'm like, why? Like, but why? <laughs> like, we can save so much money, yeah. you know, instead of, like, focusing on LinkedIn crap you know, spending $30,000 a month minimum, like, which isn't, you know, some of these companies are spending millions of dollars a month. You know, we could do a lot with $30,000 with our existing customers. I would argue it's the obsession with new growth. Like, yes. Once you become a customer and you're already on the books, you're like a renewal. It's like a couple points, maybe of increase in price or whatever. But, but you can, you can impact, you can impact net new with retention. Yes, I, I, dude, I fully agree. Like you're you're preaching to the choir, but I'm just saying in yeah. in dealing with business leaders and in dealing with like 
ownership type folks or, or, or just non-technical executives, oftentimes the thinking is we need new logos because we need new contracts and we need to show that like exponential growth. I really think we had this weird period where there was like an insane amount of exponential growth. VCs were just pissing money away left, right and center. And no one really took the time to understand like the nuances of what was happening from a buyer perspective or, or what the customers were doing or even resource utilization. Like you buy the tool, you got the tool, board's happy. Does the team actually use it? Right. Yeah. And that was a huge like predictor of whether or not they're going to renew with you. Cause if you buy a tool and then like, yeah, you celebrate and then like come renewal time, it's like, yeah, we only use this like 10% of the time. You're not going to renew. So I think yeah. it goes again back to that attitude of just like, how do we get folks in that revenue generating ownership class to, to accept and shareholders too, if you're, if you're publicly traded, it is not realistic to have 50 plus percent growth year over year. It is nuts to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to Danny's point about customer success versus customer marketing, I mean, you should be basically checking in on your customers. Cause if you see that they're like not logging in or not using, or they haven't configured it, it's not like hit them up for renewal 30 days, 60 days before the contract ends. It's like, Hey, why don't you violently love this solution? Oh, I forgot to set up the whatever or ask, Whoa, let's fix that because I want you violently passionate about this solution. Right? Like that's just like, you know, management. So we're coming up on time, but I wanted to, return Danny to this idea of operationalizing customer research. Like how do we get that? So I was talking with some university students and in the subject of AI came up naturally. And I was talking about like, how can you use these tools to enhance what your human creativity can do? I was like, do you know what every marketer wants? They do want to spend time getting qualitative feedback. The only reason we use dumb numbers like rate us one through five is because we had no way to crunch massive amounts of qualitative feedback easily. So we just made these number scales so we could do the math fast. Right. But I'm talking about these interviews that you do and you have these transcripts. You now actually have the technology to process massive amounts of customer information in ways that are infinitely more usable than stupid word clouds of you know, 2014, which is what they would try to sell you in their selling sentiment analysis tools. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's, it strikes me like you don't really have an excuse now because the technology is readily available. Oh yeah. You could do it so much quicker. I mean, I've sped up the process in, in just less than a year, sped up the process like infinitely. Um, it, it, ugh, man, I wish I had it two years ago. <laughs> you know, I wish I knew about, about some of this stuff much earlier. Let's just say that much. Um, but yeah, there is no excuse. So, so are you curious? What, what, how can I, how can I help? And like, how can I give some imparting thoughts? What, what specific thoughts should I, should I share with the audience today? Yeah. I'm thinking about this, this question of oper operationalization. Like, as you said, like I've, you know, we've done this data and we can't convince people that it matters. And you've talked about like, we hire more demand gen versus more customer marketing. I think maybe the, it's not so much a question as maybe looking for your reaction about like, if we have the tools to process the data, great. Now we take that information and how do we get it like across the team? How do we like 
involve the rest of the marketing team so that they understand the value and where to apply it. Like what does the demand gen manager do with that information? Yeah, that's a great question. As a marketer who wants to know about a specific audience or a customer, you have your own objectives. Well, you should have your own objectives. A lot of, sometimes a lot of people don't know what they need to know. So they don't know what their objective is. So if anything, step one is like, understand what you need to know. Second, understand what your stakeholders need to know, because once you know what your stakeholders need to know and what their goals are, it'll be much easier to make the case of, all right, I have this data. Here's how we can apply it to your cause. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes creating the so what from the what and then the now what much easier. There's the what, the so what, and the now what. I learned that from my boss, um, you know, four or five years ago, a CMO, great, great guy, Chris Gabler. The easiest part is the what, the data, and the now what. Like it's easy to tell people what to do. Whether or not it's mm-hmm. the right thing to do is another story. The hardest part is gather, is analyzing that data. Um, and yes, these tools that we have today, this technology, are nice supplements for analyzing data. I wouldn't rely on them wholeheartedly, but for sure. maybe you know start you know start getting experimenting with it at least. Yeah. But. Um, I would say understanding what your stakeholders need to do and then really like figuring out what are the hypotheses that you can make from the data that you're gathering and taking those hypotheses and creating like systematized actions and prioritized actions based off of those hypotheses that are backed by the evidence. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It does in my head. <laughs> I'm it visualizing does. I it. mean, I mean, I think what you're saying is like, again, you're understanding cross-discipline. Like, what do you care about? Here is this data I'm bringing to you. Not just because it's a nice yeah. thing to have. This is yeah. what matters to you. And then, and then take it, taking it a, a step even further, when I say hypothesis, you're saying, you're saying we will get to a specific place because of X, Y, Z, this is how we're going to do it. And here's the evidence that backs it. So when you come to the table to a stakeholder with that kind of information, it, it'll click to them because one, it it aligns with their goals Two, you're, you're setting up the scenario for a future state, which is easier and feels a little bit more tangible Mm -hmm. for those people. And you have a plan of action that's prioritized. It doesn't have to be perfect, but again, as marketers, we have to experiment there's the actual scientific method of experiments, right? I think that's the kind of like uh, the best advice I could give for to young and veteran marketers is is be comfortable with that kind of approach. And then, and then second is like uh, uh, operationalizing requires you to practice those what you hate calling soft skills, but what was it that you vital vital skills yeah i'm on i'm gonna i'm gonna campaign i'm gonna start calling them vital skills because yes. i don't know how you succeed without them so part of operationalize like you got to practice those vital skills um so that the operations become smoother as you as you progress through the this research journey you know marketers mm-hmm. were re, we're researchers i feel like we're marketers we have to understand the market um mm-hmm. so I would sign off for that. That wraps up this episode of Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. If you liked what you heard, consider sharing what you learned on LinkedIn and tag the show. We'd love to hear from you. Or leave us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. We'll talk to you next week.